Morning, brothers and sisters. Today's second Bible reading is from John chapter 15, verse 1 to 8. It's in your Bible, 1130. If you want to open it. John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away. And with this, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. This is the word of God. Good morning, and uh, good morning. Thank you very much uh, once again for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters, as it were, in those famous words of Shakespeare. But uh, it's good to be here, and uh, it's so encouraging that although this congregation is a very large one, and there are over 200 people at the church camp, there are so many of you here this morning. So, Russell, thank you very much for your warm welcome. It's always a joy to be at Surrey Hills, uh, which I might have reminded you on one or two previous occasions, this is the place where I was licensed, so I always have fond memories of Surrey Hills. Well, if you turn with me, please, to the 15th chapter of uh, John's Gospel, I want to uh, address with you a very important part of Scripture, uh, the first eight verses of that chapter, because they deal with uh, a critical issue. They deal with the subject of bearing spiritual fruit. Bearing spiritual fruit and uh, having a live union with Jesus Christ. And as we come to uh, read this passage together and reflect on it, uh, let's seek God's help in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, uh, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness uh, that your people may be fully equipped for every good work. We pray, Father, that uh, our lives may manifest that spiritual fruitfulness uh, of good works 
Uh, we pray that we may constantly have vital union with Christ and that his word may remain in us and we ask our God that those things that may not be as clear to us today uh, as they perhaps may be uh, in the future will become clearer. And we pray, our God, that uh, you would enable us to enjoy that abundant life that we can have in Christ. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. I wonder if you've uh, ever been in a situation in the Christian life where you've been devastated uh, by the revelation that a person who you esteemed, you held in very high regard, uh, has actually been a pretender. It's happened to me on several occasions. Uh, people in whom I had reposed enormous trust, for whom I had a very high regard, uh, with whom I'd had also a close working association, uh, turned out to be people who had actually been pretending. Uh, people who abandoned their faith as Christian leaders. I can remember one leader coming to me and saying uh, that he wished to resign from his position and he had previously served in, in mission work and other things like that. And I asked him why and he said uh, he didn't believe in the Bible. Crushing. A leader of an evangelical union. Uh, ministers who've been living double lives. Uh, people who have simply uh, betrayed the faith and have just been, as it were, camp followers rather than genuine disciples. And I want to take you to uh, a climactic moment in Jesus' life this morning where he was gathered with his most intimate circle of disciples, his trusted few, his band of brothers. And knowing uh, that he was to be betrayed that night, uh, he brought them, as it were, all together, even the one who would betray him. And at a very significant moment in the meal where Jesus passed the sop of bread to him in the celebration of the Passover, uh, he revealed who it was and effectively asked him to leave so that he could continue what he proposed to do. And the rest of the disciples were just left staggered, their mouths wide open in dismay. You can imagine the bewilderment of the other disciples uh, who were sitting in the room. You know, what's going on, they were saying. How did Jesus know that this man was going to betray him? And uh, those questions uh, were all being raised in their mind as this tragic drama unfolded. Now, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus had known for a long time what was actually taking place in Judas's heart. And it's in this context 
of Jesus exposing Judas and Judas leaving the other disciples, uh, that our Lord draws a fearful contrast between those who are false and others who are faithful in the following of Jesus. And so Judas's departure from the room, his abandoning uh, the disciples at that point, uh, sets the scene for the teaching that we receive in John 15. Now you'll notice that as we get to John 15, uh, Jesus draws upon a very powerful metaphor. And notice uh, what he says. I am the true fine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it may be even more fruitful. It's interesting, isn't it, that both branches, both the living branch and the dead branch, to all intents and purposes, uh, appear to be connected to the main branch or to the vine. The difference is that one branch, in effect, is dead. It has no life in it. It has no sap. The other branch is living and bears fruit. And the one that is lifeless is cut off by the Father and removed. And that's this scene here in John 15. One of the branches has been identified and removed. It's cut off. To all intents and purposes, that branch appeared to be firmly united to the vine, but it wasn't. And so as Jesus explains this teaching about himself being the vine and the disciples being the branches, he's teaching the disciples this truth to remind them of a terrible spiritual reality. It is possible to be a camp follower of Christ, but not to be connected to him. And I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples at this point is here is a fundamental spiritual lesson which all of you will need to carry into your ministries. You need to recognise that within a so-called church community, uh, there are some who bear spiritual fruit and others who are lifeless. And he's saying to each one of them that night, search your hearts and make sure that you are a true branch. Notice what he says. Uh, the father is an expert gardener. He goes through and he prunes branches and takes them away. And that refers to people who, like Jesus, stood in a close relationship or apparently close relationship to Jesus, but they're not true disciples. It's interesting, isn't it? For three years, Judas had followed Jesus. Three years. He'd abandoned his normal life and attached himself to Christ. He was given a position of great trust, according to John, within the apostolic band. To all intents and purposes, he seemed like one of the inner sanctum or the inner ring. 
but he wasn't. The problem was there was no underlying reality to his faith. He was a believer of sorts, but he was not a disciple. Because not everyone who believes in Christ is actually a follower. Throughout John's Gospel, we read how many people attach themselves to Jesus, many people follow Jesus, many people attended Jesus' meetings. But not all were disciples. Many stumbled when they heard some of his harder teachings. In other words, few who heard Jesus actually went on in their spiritual lives to become disciples. And the reason I, I mention that is because disciples do more than simply believe. They're more than church members. They're more than adherence. I mean, I know in our code, which we all treasure and which constitutes probably, you know, 150-odd years or so of the accumulated wisdom of the Presbyterian community, uh, we like to think that it act actually deals with all our problems in very you know, definite and succinct ways. Well, it, it, it may do. And one of the reasons I'm a member of the church is because I do respect the tradition. But I want to say this to you, you know, just simply thinking that you're a member of a church or an adherent of a church is not enough. And John 15 is saying that to us. The question is not whether you have your membership in the Surrey Hills or St Stephen's uh, church membership role, but whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life whether you're actually united to the vine in a true and a living faith. And if you are, whether there is some change that's taken place in your life. See, the problem is today we've been sold a false gospel. We're told that all you have to do is believe, just believe, and that makes you a Christian. It's a popular idea. It's uh, actually swept the church and since as long as I can remember, which takes me back probably, you know, to the 1950s, it was in that period that I, I was born, that, that's pretty much all I can remember. You know, just believe in Jesus Christ. Just accept the gospel. Sign the card, say the prayer, and you're a Christian been popularised by many uh, significant evangelists, uh, one of whom, uh, a great televangelist, a man by the name of Charles Stanley. He's got a 15,000 member congregation in Atlanta, in Georgia. And in his TV programs, he entreats people with so-called gospel appeals, like accept Jesus as your personal saviour. Ask Jesus into your heart. Invite Jesus into your life and make a decision today for Jesus. I had a student come to me who wanted to investigate you know, his theology, which she did for sort of a postgraduate project. And she was staggered to discover that this was not actually the apostolic gospel. It was something that had been taught in her church but it wasn't 
the truth as she came to discover. It's a product of what we might call a diluted gospel, but not the gospel of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus uh, is a call to faith in Christ, not just as Saviour, but as Lord. When you become a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ is your Saviour, but he is also your Lord. And therefore, it's a call to discipleship, not just a plea to make a decision or pray a prayer. It begins as an offer to eternal life, but it involves a call to repentance. True Christians are those who believe and repent, or repent and believe. In every sense, it's good news. It's an offer of eternal life and forgiveness, but it's made to those who repent and believe. In other words, they acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and they trust in him as saviour. You see, unfortunately, it's become popular in many places in the church today to teach that conversion actually requires no spiritual repentance. I could name names, but I won't. But effectively, uh, many of these people say that there, is, there need be no turning from sin, no resulting change in one's lifestyle, no promised commitment. In other words, not following Jesus, just tagging along, being a camp follower. And they say, if you repent, that amounts to something like human works and has nothing to do with faith. They say you can be saved even if your life is utterly bereft of any attendant signs or evidence of Christian commitment. But it's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus comes to talk about true discipleship, he talks about those who bear spiritual fruit. In other words, there are accompanying signs. Those signs, incidentally, are not the grounds for your acceptance with God. Let's be clear about that. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. But the grace that saves leads to works. There is no suggestion here that branches are ever saved on the basis of their good works. Rather, the works arise as a result of being grafted into Christ. Now, you'll have to excuse me, I'm just a poor city boy, but uh, when I was sent to my first charge, which was a church plant up in Wangaratta in 1976, oh, sorry, in 1980, but uh, I went up there and I just had no knowledge whatsoever of gardening. <laughs> you know, I just shouted. It shows in one sense how impoverished we are when you know, we are separated from the fundamental realities of, of life. And after about five years, uh, one of the members of the congregation who was a fruit tree grower and you know, ran orchards, he, he sort of came round to my house. He'd only become a new Christian and he, he said to me, look, I can't help but notice you've got no plants out the back. You know, it's just all lawn. He said, I could save you a lot of money if you planted a few trees and you planted some vegetables and I'll, I will happily put them in for you. 
I'll even build the garden beds. So I said, okay, fine. You know, so we got together and uh, we busily constructed these things and he brought around a couple of trees which absolutely amazed me. They, they were fruit trees. One was an apple tree. Uh, another was a stone fruit tree. And they had different apples, for example, grafted onto the one tree. Couldn't believe it. You know, this tree could produce things like Jonathan's and Granny Smith's and other things. I'd never heard of such a tree. And he showed me the curious art of grafting. He explained to me this is how growers, for example, produce you know, championship roses. They graft roses onto wild stocks. They take a cutting from a, you know, an outstanding rose, they graft it in. It's a little bit of a process, you've got to drill a hole and stick it in and glue it in. But the graft takes on the life of the main root. And it begins to produce the fruit of the special graft, even though the root may not be of that tree. You see, it, it's a reminder to us that if we've been born again from above and been given divine life by the Holy Spirit and we're united to Christ, we will start to bear a certain kind of fruit. And that fruit is made up of, among other things, good works. That's why Paul says... Um, you are created in Christ Jesus to produce good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what Paul says to Titus. And James will remind us, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, true and living faith will produce works. And those works come about as a result of the implanting of a divine life within us through the Holy Spirit. That's why John Calvin said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's a lovely play on words, isn't it? But it's true. We're saved by faith. We don't bring any works with us. But the faith that saves is never alone. It leads to a new life. In other words, true faith in Christ always leads to repentance and new life. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So do you see what Jesus is warning the disciples about here in the upper room as he talks about himself as the true vine and themselves as the branches? He's reminding them that if they want to experience a truly transformed life, and be true disciples, they need to be living in union with him. And apart from him, they can do nothing. 
That's the point of this passage here. And it's the salutary lesson that is learned when Judas picks up his bag, as it were, and goes out into the night. And it's a lesson we all need to learn. So many Christians today are taught that if they repeat a 40-second sinner's prayer or sign on a dotted line or stand and even make a profession of faith or apply to session members to become you know, a communicant member of the church, they are saved and they need never question their salvation. If only it were true. <laughs> but it requires more discernment. And this is what Jesus is teaching them here. Now I want to remind you about what Jesus said. Look at verse 2. My father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Notice here how Jesus you know, emphasises the importance of spiritual fruit. In fact, in the first eight verses of this chapter, he mentions spiritual fruit eight times. Eight times in eight verses. Isn't this telling us something? If words mean anything, I think what Jesus is saying is that true faith will always be accompanied by transformation. True faith will lead to a life of good works. In other words, if you're a Christian, if you're justified by faith, then the Holy Spirit will begin to sanctify you and it will make a change. People will see that change. You'll become evident of it. Suddenly, you'll have new affections. You will have new aspirations. You will have new desires. You will also have new hatreds. Suddenly, things that you found funny, you will despise. And suddenly, things that you might have been tempted to do, you will turn away from in horror. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. In other words, you'll begin to bear spiritual fruit. You will not simply be a believer, but you will become a disciple. Somebody who both believes Christ and follows his commandments, acknowledges him as Lord. And those changes Jesus refers to as fruit. Now, this idea of spiritual fruit is important. It's the outcome of being rightly connected to Christ. If you're a true branch and the life of Christ is flowing into you, then you will produce fruit. Every good tree, he says elsewhere, produces good fruit. You notice that's why when we're choosing elders and ministers... Uh, we're told in the Bible to look at the outcome of their lives, check their fruit. In other words, be spiritual fruit inspectors. You may not judge them, but you can examine for fruit. Is it evident? Is it obvious? That's why the qualifications, for example, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 
for church leaders are measured in terms of spiritual development, change of life and character that issues in godliness. Jesus also said that whether a person is saved or not, uh, well, at least you can tell that by looking at their fruit. You shall know them, he said, by their fruits. That's particularly important when people claim to be prophets, he said. You'll know them by their fruits. What kind of fruit are they bearing through their preaching? What kind of fruit do they demonstrate in their own life? If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. In other words, there will always be fruit in a true believer. Maybe hard at times to find it. There are days when uh, we're certainly off our game. But we will always come back if we're connected to the vine. Notice that in 24, 24 of 27 of Paul's letters, he talks about spiritual fruit. It's an Old Testament concept as well, which we discovered in reading Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. And then what does it say? He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that bears its fruit in season. So this idea of spiritual fruit is found everywhere in the Bible and it's the outcome of a life that has been renewed by God. Now the first thing that we learn about this fruit is it comes from living in a vital union with Christ. Look with me at verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. No lasting change if you're not united to Christ by faith. You can make all sorts of New Year's resolutions, but they won't add up to much. You can join a group like Moral Rearmament or whatever, but you won't bear the spiritual fruit that Jesus Christ is looking for. Notice the fruit is actually a gift from God. If you remain in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit. You can only do it as you're connected to Christ. The cause of your fruit bearing is union with Christ. So fruit is not something that we produce ourselves. It's something that comes about as a result of a union with Christ. Our great problem, of course, is that when we think about fruit, we often attribute it to ourselves and our own efforts. But we need to understand that the initial impulse for that fruit and the strength to produce it is something which is divinely given. So fruit is not about success. It's not about the numbers of people who come to church if you're a minister. It's about how many people, in a sense, have caught on to this truth about fruit bearing. And even that's not a mark of your success.
Now, of course, fruit can mean different things in Scripture. First and most importantly, it refers to the virtues of a Christ-like character. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians in the fifth chapter that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness, etc. And uh, these are virtues that come to us through the Spirit. When they come, we are purged of the works of the flesh, which he names in the same letter. So as we remain in Christ, the Spirit develops these virtues in our life. But notice there's a second fruit that the New Testament mentions, are the confession of praise. In Hebrews 13, 15, we read these. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. You notice today how our national conversation has been uh, increasingly marred by angry words, abuse, and slander and outrage and the Christian virtues of thankfulness has gone missing. You know, it even happens in the church. People love to virtue signal in the church and self-identify with some of these groups. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, you know, is the tendency of my speech to build others up, to encourage other people, to lead people to Christ, or is it full of criticism for others? See, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. So we need to be very careful about what we say. And that's why the New Testament says... Uh, this confession of praise, the fruit of lips, the confess his name is so critical. It's a spiritual fruit. Third fruit that's mentioned in the New Testament is generosity. Uh, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians when he's thinking of their financial support for him, he says this, I don't desire a gift, but I am delighted that it represents the fruit that may be credited to your account. So generosity towards other people is a spiritual fruit. If you're living in vital union with Christ, you will not find it difficult to assist other people and assist them in different ways. But it will be a mark of your faith. There are several other fruits that Paul mentions as well. One of them is thoughtful communication. 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So he says, I'm going to preach in a known tongue. In other words, his aim is to build people up through the truth. That's fruitful. So thoughtful communication is definitely a spiritual fruit. And so are good works. Paul says to the Colossians, live a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. And those spiritual works are as a result of our union with Christ. Notice too that evangelism is a spiritual work. And it doesn't have to be successful evangelism. 
You know, people think, oh, look, you know, I've only succeeded in evangelism. It's really only become a good work if somebody's been led to Christ and made a profession in the church. No. So do you remember the, uh, the North American missionaries who went to Ecuador? Jim Elliott and his friends. And they died uh, bearing witness to people who couldn't even understand them, speared to death and left to die in the river. Virtually the whole tribe of the Orcas uh, became Christians subsequently. And largely because of the fact that these men came to them and they understood what they had meant and they were overwhelmed with grief for what they'd done and they became Christians. Spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit. Now how do we ensure that we uh, produce a lot of fruit? How do we ensure that we're true disciples? Well, when this gentleman in Wangaratta came round to see me, who was the fruit grower, he said, Peter, you need to read a book. <laughs> you know, I can't be here all the time teaching you all these things. You need to go out and get a few books. So, you know, he, he told me a few books to get. What sort of manure I needed. What I needed to do with the soil. When I needed to plant. And particularly how I needed to care for these poor little trees. Because, you know, I was like a, a new mother who hadn't got the faintest idea of how to change a nappy or anything else, you know. None. And so I started to read. I devoured everything I could get my hands on. And I became an expert in the subject. And after a couple of seasons, my trees took off. Absolutely took off. And I was getting... I don't want to sort of boast about this, but... <laughs> I, I was getting, you know, on many nights during the season, you know, a couple of litres of strawberries out of my strawberry patch every night. And I can tell you they taste a whole lot better than you'll ever get in Woolworths or Coles. Amazing. But why? Because I'd been taught. I had learned. And that's why the centrality of the word in this process is so critical. Verse 3 you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. In other words, we need to be taught. And the way we're taught is we go to God's word. So our life is sustained by faith in Christ and we mature and produce fruit as we study God's word. Now, what does that mean? It means remaining and abiding in the word of God. Not just reading it, but going back and trying to understand it. Actually meditating upon it, and dare I say, memorising it. I know people think, well, I just need to go to Bible Gateway, or I just need to have my Bible with me. Actually, you don't. If you learn some fundamental texts, like the one we read this morning, right? Do not harbour revenge against one of your brethren. That's a mighty important one to learn, isn't it? You've got to repeat it about 50 times before it actually goes in word perfect. But once it goes in, you'll never do it again. Hopefully. 
And, you know, I've had to learn sections of the book of Proverbs just to prevent me from doing things that I was habituated to do through my non-Christian days. And the only way in which I could really reverse them was to meditate on them and memorise them. Memorising is really important. So let me ask you today. You know, have you discovered this secret of spiritual fruitfulness? It's actually quite simple. It involves personal union with Christ and as a result of that union and the spiritual life that Christ conveys, we will begin to produce good works. And those works are many and various. But friends, they need to be there both to, to verify the reality of your faith but also to please God. Uh, to please God that you're living in the way that he wants you to live. Not because that will save you, but because it demonstrates the power of God's grace in transforming your life. And it magnifies him before all authorities in heaven and on earth. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again uh, this morning that it is by grace, uh, through faith in Christ, uh, that we are saved. And this is not of ourselves. It's not by works so that none of us can boast. But we do thank you that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus ultimately to do good works and produce spiritual fruit. And so we pray that as the word of God abides in us, uh, you would help us day by day to grow. Grow in grace, grow in favour. And Father, uh, grow in Christ-likeness. And we pray, our God, that through this uh, you will glorify yourself in our families, uh, in our work, within the church, and wherever you send us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.